Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 5, verses 33 through 42. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, you and you only, we want to delight. We want you to be our treasure alone so that we might love you, we might honor you, we might seek to glorify you in our lives as we obey your word. So Father, use this prayer of ours as we have sung together corporately to shape us and to mold us. Father, so often we expect prayer to change things outside of us, and yet so often you intend for our prayers to change us. So we ask that you would do that. Father, this morning we have so many things to be thankful for. We thank you for our sister, Gwen. We thank you that you have worked so wondrously in her heart to awaken her to faith so that she might love and cherish your son as her hope in life and death. Father, we pray that her life would be filled with a resolute hope in Christ as she seeks to obey him. We thank you for Daniel and Jennifer and their faithful witness to her. Pray that they would be a constant encouragement to her in the faith. And I pray that we, as her church family, would show her the way. May Gwen find many spiritual mothers and fathers in this congregation that would walk alongside of her as we all seek to follow Christ showing her what it means to have an obedience, a long obedience in the same direction towards you. We thank you for Gwen. Father, we also we thank you for our missionary partners. This morning, we want to thank you for the M family. We thank you that they have gotten back home safely. And we pray that their home is, is the way that they left it. And we do pray for fruit, fruit from their ministry, that as they seek to extol the excellencies of Christ to their people group there, that many of the locals would hear the gospel and they would believe the same thing that we believe, that Christ has regarded our helpless estate, that he has done what we can't in securing righteousness for us before you. Father, be with the M family. May they be encouraged. May they sense community there with other local believers, but may they also know that we are with them in spirit, that we are striving with them as they seek to proclaim the gospel. Thank you for the M family. Father, this morning, we also want to confess our weakness. As we have seen time after time in the sermon that your son preached, that it is beyond us. Father, you require a righteousness that we can achieve. 
So we need your help. And you have shown us that you will help us by your son's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so, Father, if we have any hope to live this kingdom ethic that Jesus is teaching us in his sermon, it must be resurrection power. So we pray that you would help us even this morning to hear and to understand and then to obey, to obey these things for your name's sake and our good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you haven't turned in your Bibles already, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. If you don't have a Bible, grab the one in the chair in front of you and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Now, I was a little too young for the Be Like Mike era. Do your own math there. But I think any time that we see someone who's a master of their craft, we want to emulate them, right? That's the whole thing behind Be Like Mike. Michael Jordan was so transcendent in his basketball ability that everybody wanted to be like him. They wanted to play like him. They wanted to stick out his tongue as he dunked the basketball like him. But for me... I wasn't a big fan of basketball growing up. I was a baseball fan. And my Be Like Mike was Josh Hamilton of the Texas Rangers. When I played baseball in high school, I wanted to be like Josh. Now, if you don't know who Josh Hamilton is, go YouTube the 2008 Home Run Derby and marvel at the athletic prowess to be able to knock home run after home run. But I think sometimes when we see someone that's so good, while we do want to be like them, Sometimes we can leave discouraged because we can realize I can't be like them. Michael Jordan was a once in a generation talent. Josh Hamilton, a once in a generation talent. How can we be like these people? And here we have this teaching of the kingdom that Jesus brings us and we rightly as Christians, we want to be like Jesus. Because whenever we come to this description of what kingdom citizens look like. Jesus is not arbitrary. I told the students this morning, Jesus does not waste his breath. When he teaches, he teaches with intentionality. So therefore, what he teaches in this sermon, we ought to know it was on Jesus' mind and it was something we ought to pay attention to. He's outlining what kingdom citizens ought to look like in this sermon. And yet, where does he get this idea of what kingdom citizens ought to look like? Well, he gets it from the fact that this is what he is like. Jesus, while he is describing what we ought to be, he is ultimately describing what he is. And we'll see the ways that he acts today in keeping his word and loving and not retaliating against his enemies as we read through these passages. But I just want to point out what God wants to do within us in this text. Go back really briefly to chapter 5, verse 8. And kind of this preamble to the sermon. We have these beatitudes. The blessed life looks like this. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the principle guiding this sermon. And you see the pattern there. Happy, blessed are those 
who live in a particular way, but you'll notice those descriptions, pure in heart, peacemaker, persecuted for righteousness' sake, who do those ultimately describe? They describe Jesus. He is these things. So blessed are those who live like Jesus because they will experience God. That's what this preamble is meant to teach us. Blessed are those, happy are those who live like Jesus because they will see God. And we're going to see this morning how our lives are to emulate that of our kings in two ways in particular. The first, in verses 33 to 37, is this. Kingdom citizens exhibit radical honesty. Kingdom citizens exhibit radical honesty. Look in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. We've already seen this pattern in this sermon where Jesus goes and he quotes the Old Testament, particularly the law of Moses to make his teaching stand out. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. And so the law of Moses is clear. This comes out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. We don't have time to go back and look at those right now, but the principle is clear. When you make a vow before the Lord, keep it. See, to make a vow or an oath before the Lord was not a frivolous event. It was a solemn act that incurred stricter scrutiny and judgment because it brought the integrity of God into the picture. I will keep this oath according to God's faithfulness is the statement being made. And you can see here how there was danger in this type of oath, how there was a propensity for sin that just comes with the territory of this type of commitment because you're at risk at breaking at least two of the Ten Commandments. One, of taking the Lord's name in vain, but of two, of ultimately bearing a false witness. And we see in passages like Deuteronomy 23 and Ecclesiastes chapter 5 that Israelites were actively encouraged not to take oaths if they could avoid it because it was such a serious thing. If you can avoid to take an oath, don't. That way you're not prone to sin is the principle being taught in these passages. Yet, Jesus is responding to a cultural norm at the time. See, it was likely that people were to take oaths and yet they would do it flippantly. Look in verse 34. So he quotes the Old Testament command, but then he says, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all. So we saw, don't swear falsely. Jesus says, don't take an oath at all. Why? Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. See, what Jesus is saying here is that you think that you have found a loophole to the law. They were obeying the letter of the law in not taking oaths in God's name, but they were taking oaths by other things, by heaven or earth or Jerusalem. Now, we from a very early age are really good at keeping the letter of the law, right? You probably have a child that's really good at keeping the letter of the law. You have a child who you say, don't say another word, and then they become a professional beatboxer, right? Or you have a child that's really good at not touching their siblings, I'm not touching, I didn't touch them. You told me not to touch them, I didn't touch them, right? We, we are really good from an early age of obeying the letter of the law and ignoring the intent of the law. And this is what Jesus is pointing out. You're not taking oaths in God's name, 
but you're swearing by heaven. You're swearing by earth. You're swearing by Jerusalem. But Jesus undermines this. You swear by heaven, but that's the throne of God. You swear by earth, that's his footstool. You swear by Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the signal that God is the king of this world. And so they were swearing by these loopholes. And then there's even one more. Look there in verse 36. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. See, they thought, okay, I'm not taking an oath by any of these things that have any relation to God, but then Jesus says, your own head belongs to God. Your own life is in God's hands. You can't have ultimate authority over your life. God has authority over your life. You can't, make, you can't choose your hair color from birth. God is the one who chooses those things. So don't take an oath at all. And it's a very simple and profound ethic that the kingdom citizens are to be marked by. He makes that clear in verse 37. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Or as Jane puts it, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The command of the king is simple enough to understand. We, as God's people, ought to speak truthfully. We, as God's people, ought to keep our word. We shouldn't have to invoke the name of God to be considered truthful. It should be the pattern of the Christian that we prove our credibility and our integrity not by swearing, but by speaking and acting consistently and truthfully. For the people of God, our word is our bond. What we say is what we mean. And I think this is in part what Jesus means in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. God's people are filled with integrity. And notice what he says at the very end of the section. Anything more comes from evil. Now, does this mean, Jesus, Jesus has, says, don't swear an oath at all. Now he says, anything more comes from evil. Does this mean that the act of swearing an oath is evil in and of itself? I don't think so. We've got passages that attribute oaths to God. God makes oaths. He talks about it in, in um in his connection with Abraham. He talks about his promise that he made to Abraham. He said, I swear an oath and I swear by myself. God makes oaths. And then we have example of Paul making oaths. 2 Corinthians 1.23, but I call God to witness against me. Or Galatians 1.20, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. No, Jesus doesn't seem to outlaw the idea of taking an oath in general. He's saying you should not require an oath at all. It should be beyond you to need this. So it's not saying when you're called to go to jury duty or you're called to submit yourself before a court or you're taking a, a public office that you can't swear an oath in those situations. He's saying it shouldn't be necessary for the Christian to be subject to these things. Because if we require something like this type of statement to prove our credibility, then that reality is because of evil. Anything more than this comes from evil. And this is a signal to us and to the people around us of where our allegiance lies. Where your mouth leads you to sin, whether you are acting truthfully or untruthfully, is a signal to where your allegiance lies. John chapter 8, verse 44, speaking of Satan, says this, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, 
for he is, the, he is a liar and the father of lies. So when we speak untruthfully, when we speak lies, when we are not keeping our word, then we betray our true allegiance to the one whose character is that of a liar, to who is the father of lies. So this idea of what our mouths lead us to do is important all throughout the scriptures, but particularly here. So let's look at a few proverbs to help us understand what radical honesty looks like. What radical honesty looks like. And where does this radical honesty come? Well, first we see that radical honesty is produced from a fear of God. You will speak more consistently truthfully when you develop a robust view of God and therefore a greater fear of God. And I think this is the problem presented in this text, right? They were able to swear by all these other things because they ultimately didn't fear the one who is in charge of these things. Jesus condemns this behavior. It's an an adequate view of the fear of God. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, Proverbs tells us. Here we see a direct correlation between our understanding of God and the truthfulness of our speech. If we don't fear God, we won't see a need to be marked by this radical, utter honesty. So radical honesty is produced from a fear of God. We know we will be held accountable for our words and therefore we will speak carefully and truthfully. Second, radical honesty is produced from a purified heart. Proverbs 12, 13 and 14. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good and the work of a man's hand come back to him. Or Jesus states it in another way, Matthew chapter 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what we say matters. It gives us an indication on the state of our heart, the state of our souls. What comes out of your house, out of your mouth, betrays what's inside. Whatever is in the picture will come out. So the one who speaks honestly is demonstrating that their heart has been purified by the Spirit of God. So this is, what, this is where radical honesty comes from. What does radical honesty look like? Well, since Blake gave us seven ways to fight anger, nine ways to fight lust, ten ways to divorce-proof our marriage, here are 27 ways to be radically honest. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> radical honesty means this. You keep your word in as far as you are able. Radical honesty is keeping your word in so far as you are able. And this comes out of response to God's character, right? Our God is not prone to forsaking his word. Neither should we. We ought to be people of integrity and dependability. So let's do some good diagnostic questions, okay? Diagnostic questions are always helpful. Question number one, do people see you as reliable or are people going to call you a flake? It might seem simple, but does it betray something truer about you? Do people consider you a flaky person or they see you as reliable? Do the people you interact with, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, do they see you as a person of your word? 
Do your words carry weight because they know your words are true and that you'll keep them? When you commit to something, are people instilled with confidence or are they filled with uncertainty? Or maybe something simple. Do you feel a need to add the words, I promise, for people to believe you? Maybe this is in connection with your spouse or your kids. I had to realize this with my own kids and saying to them, I'll do this. And then I would add the words, I promise. The Lord convicted me through the, through the help of my spouse. Am I saying those words because I'm liable not to keep it otherwise? In our marriages, are we keeping our word? Especially for the long haul. Our marriages begin with vows and promises. Are we keeping these? Are we being faithful to the vows that we made to love our spouses in all ways, in all times, and in all situations? What about the small things? When you make a commitment to your spouse or your children, are you known for follow-through? Or when you claim to do something, are you met with eye rolls because there's a lingering suspicion that it's never going to happen? Have you told your wife that you're going to take that day off and spend it with her? Has it happened yet? Did you tell your kids that you would take them fishing or that you would make it to their ball game? Did you follow through? Proverbs 20, 6 and 7. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Maybe, maybe you're a bit younger in the room, students and kids. Have you built a, built a reputation with your parents and your teachers that they can trust your word? Or have you so neglected truth-telling that your parents have a hard time believing anything that you say? Or are you likely to shift blame when you're at fault and not tell the truth and shift, shift blame to a sibling or a friend? Do you know that God has something to say about this too? Proverbs 24 Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Kids and students, are you truthful with your interactions? Maybe you're single in the group and considering marriage. Have you considered that your word and your integrity are greater desirable traits than just about anything else? Proverbs 19.22 What is desired in a man is steadfast love, consistent, promise-keeping love. And then it says this, a poor man is better than a liar. Or maybe you're tempted to speak untruthfully or fail to keep your word at your workplace. I also think these principles apply at at school as well, so students don't don't tune out. At your work or at your school, are you likely to cheat to get ahead? As an employee or as a student, are you seeking to do the bare minimum just to get by? Proverbs 21.6, the greatest of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. When Katie and I lived in Louisville, went to seminary, and there were lots of employers in the area that were likely to hire seminary students. You know why? Because they showed themselves to be people of their word. They worked hard. They did what they were told. They were consistent and they were full of integrity. Maybe you're an employer in the room 
Are you keeping your word with how you treat and compensate your employees? Are you tempted to maybe unethically skirt by payments or avoid taxes? Proverbs 20.10, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. If you're marked by these patterns, by any of these patterns, the Lord calls you to repent. The Lord makes no small claim about this type of life. Proverbs 26, 24, whoever hates disguises himself with with his lips and harbors deceit in his mouth. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Through his hatred, he is covered with deception. The wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. In every area of life, we ought to be deeply concerned with being marked by radical honesty, by being people of our word, because our king is a man of his word. So kingdom citizens are marked by radical honesty. The second section, Jesus teaches us that kingdom citizens endure suffering patiently. Kingdom citizens endure suffering patiently. Look in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus moves in verse 37 to now begin to speak about enemy relations. And we'll see more next week about how to love our enemies. But this section, Jesus seems to be preparing his people for suffering against persecution. And I would argue this is not least in part because we're people that tell the truth. But we see the typical pattern here, that Jesus is quoting the law. And Jesus reminds his audience of the standing Mosaic covenant, that this is included in there as a just form of retribution. Now, this isn't vigilante retribution, where if someone attacks you, you attack them back. But this is a legal setting where this was a prescription for how, when a legal situation arose, how they could prescribe just punishments. They would find something that was corresponding and commiserate of the punishment for the wrongdoing. However, if someone came and falsely accused someone else, well then the punishment would fall back on the false accuser. So this is a legal situation, this is not like a personal back-to-back, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Jesus still presses forward, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one as evil. But if anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now Jesus is shifting gears here, talking about when people act in vengeance against their wrongdoer. The natural response is to attack back, right? The natural response is to get even, to get revenge. This is something we all feel within us. Nowadays, we're probably not so prone to do this in physical altercations, but how many of us are tempted to go online and lobby sometimes anonymous grenades at people? If you've never been on the Nextdoor app, it's not the most useful thing, but there's some entertaining things on here about people posting when they've been wrong, they've been upset, and so they have to go online and they have to vent about it. Here's a couple. Neighborly consideration, all caps. Is it really necessary that you mow, weedy, and edge your lawn on Sundays between four and seven when folks are preparing dinner and or sitting down for dinner? I mean, who's that directed to? I don't know, just upset, just a venting. Let's keep going. Another one. More vandalism. I will be filing a report to the police. I won't tolerate your disrespect. This is the second time in a week that someone has put a slice of cheese on my car. 
There was a new trash policy. When the new bins of trash arrive, put yourself inside. These are all real, like these are people's posts online. We're liable to retaliate, to act out of vengeance, right? We want to get even. We want to make sure that no level of disrespect, no amount of wrongdoing is left uncovered, even if that means anonymous lobs online. But the people of the kingdom are different. And Jesus gives us four examples here of what that looks like. Look back at verse 38. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, before we break down what Jesus is trying to do here, I want to make a quick side note about the source of these conflicts. I think this is important. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Notice that the instigator in this situation is described as evil. Now, this is different than verse 37. Anything more that comes from evil, that could be translated evil one. And we talked about him being the father of lies, how he's the source of all, distru- or, uh, of all lies in the world. But now this is, seems to be the one who is evil. This kind of seems to be generally the one who is acting out of their character in an evil sense. But Jesus gives us a way of dif- dealing with conflict from those that we would call family. So now we're talking about enemies, but he also talks about how we should deal with family. Flip over to Matthew 18 real quick, because I think this is a really important distinction that we need to understand. Matthew 18, verse 15. So we're talking enemy relations in Matthew 5. Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about family relations. Notice the distinction. 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So this is a distinction here. Jesus, in accordance with our enemies, is prescribing an ethic of non-retaliation. But Jesus, in relation to our family, when a brother sins against us, when someone who we would call family sins against us, what do we do? Gentle confrontation. So there's a distinction here between how we deal with these two parties. And so, these interactions with evil one, the apparent posture that Jesus is prescribing here is that these interactions should be expected. Peter talks about, don't be surprised, brothers, when you are encountered with trials of various kinds. This is expected for kingdom citizens. So much so, verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is talking about that we're going to experience a type of retribution, a type of persecution that will be similar and akin to that of the prophets. And so we should expect it. And Jesus kind of paints a broad brush here. First he talks about if we receive an attack as as a person, as an insult. That's what the picture of this slap on the cheek is. Yes, it's violent and aggressive, but it's also an insult to you as a person. It would be demeaning just to accept it. And Jesus says, don't just accept it. Don't retaliate. Offer the other cheek as well, as though though you're offering it for him a second go. Second, in verse 40, Jesus talks about how our property is at threat. If someone sues you for your tunic, let him have your cloak. And the picture at this time and in this age is that's the entirety of the man's garments. 
right? His, his garments are on him, and if it's taken from you in a, in a legal setting, this is if someone's suing you for your property, for persecution's sake, offer him your cloak. And number three, we see that conflict arises within someone's position of society. This idea of forcing them to go one mile and then going with them another, it was legal. Remember, Palestine is under Roman occupation. It was legal for Roman citizens to conscript Jewish citizens to carry their stuff like pack mules. And so there's already a resent towards the Roman elite and authorities, but now they're treated as livestock to carry their stuff. Jesus says, don't just go one mile, offer to go a second. This would have been like rubbing salt in an already festering wound. And then Jesus tells us, be generous. Be generous with those that beg from you. Do not refuse a borrower. So why is Jesus? Why is Jesus giving us this ethic? Why is he presenting to us to take a posture of non-retaliation? It's kind of an unqualified command here. But it'll tell us in a second, our posture ought to be non-retaliation because our posture is that of love. We don't hate our enemies, we love our enemies. Paul picks up this idea in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Behold, or beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's through these illustrations that Jesus makes his key point. That kingdom citizens, followers of Christ, will be subject to insult and injury. And we must be prepared to suffer patiently. But how? How do we suffer patiently? Well, Paul makes it clear in Romans 12. We entrust ourselves to the Lord. In this way, we follow the prophets and we follow Jesus. See, this is not a call to lay down like doormats. This is not a call to, defend, to not defend the oppressed or the downtrodden. But this is a call to patiently endure and to not seek vengeance and revenge. Knowing that vengeance is God's. He will act justly on your behalf. And it's the scandal of the kingdom. Again, a scandal that we don't seek retaliation. We don't seek an eye for an eye. We know that God will enact justice on our behalf. He will not let injustice go. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what does this patient suffering look like? Well, as we've already said, patient suffering means seeking good and not vengeance against our enemy. Patient suffer means, patient suffering means seeking good and not vengeance against our enemy. There's something right about our desire for justice, right? I mean, there's a, there's a reason that most of our eyes, if not all of them, were glued to screens and TVs to see the outcome of a court case. Because we care about justice. We want to see justice done. But we as Christians should expect to be the victims of injustice, Injustice will come to us. Persecution will come to us. It is promised to us. So we must realize 
that we might not get justice now. Even with legitimate wrongs, legitimate injustices, we must wait on God. First Peter is probably one of the most helpful books on this topic in particular. First Peter chapter 2. Notice how he starts it. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's an interesting turn there. It's a gracious thing when someone who is mindful of God experiences, experiences sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter calls that a gracious thing. He keeps going. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. For Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, it is our mindfulness of God that Peter alludes to that will bear us through this type of suffering. When we're mindful of ourself, when we're mindful of our own injustices and our own victimhood, you know what, pro- what happens? We will seek revenge. Peter tells us when we're mindful of God, we will trust him. God will ultimately and more supremely enact justice on your behalf. The justice that you seek in vengeance and revenge is too little. It's too little. You have real injustices in your life. You will have real injustices in your life. Persecution is coming and it's already here. Injustice will continue to grow. And if you seek vengeance, you're seeking too little justice. We are being ushered into an age, and sometime, in some ways we're already here, in which our deeply held biblical convictions are going to incur repercussions in persecution. It has been, in some ways, difficult in the past century or so to divide what it means to be an American and be a Christian, but it seems as though they, those days are gone. The divide between being an American and being a Christian is sometimes drifting apart. We have to decide where our allegiance will lie. Persecution will come as it becomes less popular to be a Christian. So with full expectation that it's coming, how will we, be, how will we respond? We're going to be ostracized by our neighbors. Our religious liberty, unless God does something different and miraculous, our religious liberty will continue to fade away. How will we respond when our friends call us bigots? How will we respond when we lose position, influence, reputation, income, maybe even our own family members because of our beliefs? The answer to this question is central to Jesus' point in this passage. We'll either seek vengeance on our own or we will trust the Lord. And here's the good news, and we'll close with this. Patient suffering means rejoicing. Patient suffering means rejoicing. Why? Because through suffering, we are confirmed in Christ and we are conformed to Christ. It's through patient suffering that we're confirmed in our union with Christ. Go back to verse 10. This is the interpretive lens for this whole sermon, these Beatitudes. Look at verse 10. Blessed are you for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Part of the sign that we belong to this kingdom of our king is that we are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, I can't not read 1 Peter here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you, as though something strange is happening to you. Expect it, saint, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's one thing to suffer whenever you're in the wrong. That's expected. But it's another thing to suffer unjustly because of our obedience to Christ. But Peter tells us it's coming. Rejoice, you are blessed. It reminds us of our union with Christ in this way, but it also conforms us to the image of Christ. Romans 8 All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What's the good? That we would be conformed to Christ. 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I wonder, are you here this morning? Do these commands, these ethics that Jesus is laying out to you, do they seem odd? Do the prescriptions of Jesus seem extreme? Really? Are we this serious about keeping our word? Should we really expect this type of persecution, this type of life? I would suggest to you today that if this seems foreign to you, it is because Christ is foreign to you. Christ lived this life. He kept his word fully and completely. So much so that his claims about himself and about his work, they incurred the wrath of the religious elite, wrath of the Roman authorities, so that they killed him for it. See, it is Christ who patiently suffered for you. He endured just unjust treatment from his enemies so that he might make them his friends. Flip to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 26. And you remember, Jesus talks about them attacking the person, an insulting slap, them taking the garments. All of these things that Jesus described, by the time Jesus ends up on the cross, you know what he's experienced? Every single one of these. He's been insulted. He's been mocked. His clothing has been taken. Instead of carrying a Roman soldier's weapon like a sword, he bore the Romans cross this is the picture of Jesus friends of what Jesus has done verse 26 Pilate released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus delivered him to be crucified then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. 
And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The kingdom ethic that we're to obey is severe because what Jesus experienced is severe. But pay mind to how Matthew describes us who experience this and how Peter describes us. We are blessed to partake in this cruciform life. Saints, keep your word. Saints, suffer patiently. For our king is coming and he will keep his word and he will enact justice on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can believe your word because you keep it. You make promises and you promise that your word will not return void. It will accomplish what it wills. So we ask that it would accomplish what you will for it in our lives even today. Father, if we are marked by a lack of truthfulness, call us to repent. If we are marked by an act of vengeance and retaliation and not a posture of love, help us to repent. Help us to emulate Christ in all ways, keeping our word, suffering patiently, trusting you all the while. Father, give us hope. These things can be discouraging. Help us to believe that we are blessed that we can rejoice when these things mark our lives. Help us to sing these truths. Help us to be reminded of them as we partake in the Lord's Supper, to be reminded that Christ bore reproach on our behalf so that we might have hope and life in his name. Let us praise that name together. Amen.